Thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at hope. Uh, we're in our second week of a, of a four-week section on hope in our sermon series called Faith, Hope, and Love. Last week, Kirsten talked about Jesus being our hope, the object of our hope, the substance of our hope. Um, and for the, this week and the next two, we're going to be unpacking a bit about what that looks like to hope in Jesus. It's a weird week to do it in a way. I know, I know of so many stories of despair and frustration and tiredness and melancholy and drudgery. Um, I also know these are the precise moments where we need to hear hope. I know there are also moments where it's hardest for us to believe in hope, but that's why we need it. Um, in the next two weeks, we're going to talk about some of the content of our hope in Christ. Today's a little bit uh, interesting. We're going to talk about why it's important that we hope at all. Because I'm pretty convinced that we, are, we don't hope much, that our exercise of hope is limited, that we're, our, 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 our hoping muscles are atrophied um, or have never been strengthened. And, and I hope to make a case tonight from the book of Ephesians to hope. Um, I think there are only two, two possibilities in this world, friends, and one is hope and one is despair. Um, and I pray that tonight we learn how to hope um, and, and that we're invited into an activity of hope, even though I know it makes us vulnerable and exposes us to being let down. Um, the lack of hoping is costing us a tremendous amount. So let's pray. We'll get into our text for this evening. Um, Lord, would you send your spirit that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our hope, our rock, and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. If you got a Bible, please open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, um, I'm going to say a few words about Ephesians real quick. Ephesians is a general letter. It was uh, given to Onesimus and Tychicus uh, to, to deliver to churches on the way. So Paul wrote two letters. One was Philemon. The other was Colossians or Philippians. I forget which one. One of the two. And he sent them with letters to deliver. But, but, you know, he knew on the way, you guys are going to stop at lots of churches. And, and when you stop at those churches, give them this letter. And so listen to this. Ephesians is a kind of a generic letter. It's a, it's a transferable letter. It's something that's good for any churches at any time in any place, right? Um, and we're going to read today a prayer of, of the Apostle Paul that he has for Christians he's never met. And so it's going to start in chapter 1, verse 15. And just, I want to read just the first verse or two here to kind of tee this up. He says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. And what we should hear Paul say is, whenever he hears of any stories of any Christians anywhere, of God's love in them and through them, he gives thanks to God for the church. Right? This is a generic letter. He wrote it in like a first-person kind of way, so it's a, a, easier to receive. But, um, but what this means is, if this is Paul's prayer for any Christians that he hasn't met yet, in a sense, this is a, Paul's prayer for me and you as well. And I want us to listen like that, that this isn't just a prayer that we listen in on and learn a few things from. It's a prayer that our brother, the Apostle Paul, would have been praying for us too. Okay? These are things that he wants for us, and I want us to listen to this accordingly. Um, we're going to read verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1, and then we're going to skip ahead to chapter 3. And, and we're not going to read in a lot of text tonight, but the reason why we're skipping ahead is because Paul interrupts himself. It's one of my favorite uh, rhetorical habits. I'm doing it right now. 
I interrupting myself. Paul starts praying, begins to, at one point in his prayer, talk about Jesus. And how do you not talk about Jesus, right? He stops and just kind of like glories in our elder brother, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, our groom, our, our Lord. He, 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 he spends like a chapter and a half just geeking out about Jesus. And then in chapter three, he, he starts to pray again, interrupts himself again. And then in chapter three, verse 14, he actually picks up this prayer. Okay, so it's disjointed by, uh, by interludes, but it's really one prayer. I, I pray this all the time, and then interruption, interruption. This is, this is him summarizing his prayer. And um, let's read this, this first half together, verses 15 through 20. And I want to talk to you a bit about what Paul wants for those of us who are in Christ. So here's what he says. And we're going to pick it up in verse um, 17. I pray for you constantly, asking God the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that He has given to those He called, His holy people, who are His rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand that the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Let's stop there. So, Paul says this is how he prays for these Christians he's never met before. That God would give them spiritual wisdom and insight so that they would know, they would uh, have the knowledge of God that God has offered to them. That they would grow in the knowledge of God. That's a gift of grace. God must give us wisdom and insight in order to do this. But this is what Paul wants, that you grow in your knowledge of God. The reason I'm flexing this for a minute or, or pausing on this for a minute is because what this reveals is it's possible to be a Christian, to be a saint, to be in Christ and to still need to grow in your knowledge of God. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you've got it all together. The scriptures never promise that you'll know everything. That's called omniscience. Only God is omniscient. Anybody who says when you get to heaven you'll know everything is lying. That's not true. But our knowledge of God right now is not fully formed. We'll see Paul again in a minute talk about how we can never exhaust our knowledge of God. We'll never be done. But, but he does want us to grow in our knowledge of God. Christian, we must, if we're going to receive this prayer, admit that we don't know all that we can know yet about Jesus, and we have room to grow. And in our humility, may God give us wisdom and insight that we might grow in our knowledge of Him. And then Paul, it may be hard depending on the translation of the Bible you're reading, so I'm reading the, the New Living Translation today. I don't know what you're reading. I'm sure it's great. But they, they all flex a little bit different as they carry the Greek into English. But what Paul's actually doing is he begins to break down what he means by knowledge of God. So he wants you to grow in your knowledge of God. What does that mean? It means these three things. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of God by knowing the confident hope that we have in Jesus, knowing about our inheritance, and knowing the power that's at work within us. This is what he means. If we grow in the knowledge of God, we grow in our knowledge of these three things. I'm going to work backwards. I'm going to work my way up the text for just a minute because tonight I want to talk about hope. And so we're going, to, we're going to kind of land there and then move to our next section of Scripture. So power. He wants us to know that the same power that was at work to raise Jesus from the freaking grave is at work in you and me. 
And he throws like the kitchen sink of the Greek dictionary at us or alphabet at us. Like he, he brings four Greek words to the front of this text to try to capture what he means by how powerful this power in us is. It's like dynamite. It's, it's strong. It's, it's energy. Paul brings all these words to the front and he, he really summarizes it by saying the same power that brings life out of death is at work in you. If that's true, what is impossible for God? If the same power that brought Jesus out of the grave is at work in you, what, you think that your bad habits are too hard for him? Your pedigree? The fact that you're tired or, or you have the wrong Enneagram type? What? What is it that's impossible for God if the same power that brought life out of the grave is at work in you? Paul wants you to grow in your knowledge of the power of God at work in you, and he wants you to grow in your knowledge of the inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ. Now, this Greek here is a little bit weird, and so different, different Bibles will translate this slightly differently, and, and so I'm just going to suggest both of these to you. In some of our Bibles, the way that this looks is that what Paul wants is for us to grow in our knowledge of the inheritance that we have with Jesus. In other words, Jesus shares his inheritance with you and with me. This is massive, and we should know the content of what we're inheriting. More on that next week. It also could mean that we are the inheritance that Jesus is getting. In other words, in all of the cosmos, the thing God loves the most and cares about the most is you and I. And so this could tell us that we need to grow in our knowledge of how much God loves us. Paul's going to say that in a minute or how much we are inheriting in Jesus. He just said that in, our pre in the previous verses that we didn't read, in, in verses like 11 through 14 or something like that of chapter 1. Either way, let's grow in our knowledge of that. And then the last thing here is hope. Paul wants us to grow in, our, in the knowledge of the confident hope that we have in Jesus. And, and though we'll talk about the content of that next week, I want to talk about how important it is that we grow in these things. What happens if we don't? What happens if we're following Jesus, but, but we, our knowledge of Him doesn't grow in such a way that we become more aware of our hope and of our inheritance and of His power at work in us? What does it cost us? if we don't hope. And the reason why I want to flex this tonight, I've said this earlier, is that we do not practice hope very much. And I think we don't practice hope for two reasons. Really, it's one. There's just like another level to it. First, we often practice very manageable hope. And, and so we, we do things like this, like, okay, like my one of my daughters um, for years has been asking for a horse for her birthday and for Christmas. And there will probably come a time, I pray that it won't happen. I think I might have even shared this before on a Tuesday night. There will probably come a time when she will stop asking for a horse because she thinks it's unrealistic and she's tired of being disappointed. And I hope that never happens, right? Like I hope that never happens. Um, or, or, or my other daughter today, she, it's Dr. Seuss week at their school and, and one of the days today is like dress up as the kind of person that you, or as the job that you want to have one day. There's a cool name for it. I don't know what it is. Um, but it's a career day or something. And, and she was wearing a hat today that said animal rescuer. And I was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she's like, an animal rescuer. <laughs> I said, like a dummy. I said, uh, uh, what's that? Like, 
a ranger or like a vet, like not a vet, right? And she and she looked at me like, Daddy, look, I don't know why you're getting lost in the details. I want to be an animal rescuer, you know? Like literally, she has so much confidence in what she wants and hopes for right now. Like my tripping over job titles doesn't even matter, you know, to her. But here's what I know. I know that at some point in her life, she's going to have some experiences, probably from a boy. Men, we've got a lot of work to do. Women do not exist for our pleasure. They don't exist for us to win or woo or save or heal or protect. Um, May we not perpetuate the sins of our fathers. May we become more like Jesus. This isn't part of the sermon. That's another sermon. Um, This one. It'll probably be a boy. It might not be a boy. It might be other experiences. But 10 years from now, if she's wearing a hat that says animal rescuer, and I said the same thing I said to her this morning, animal rescuer, what's that? Instead of her pushing back against me that I'm making it complicated and her hopes can kind of dominate and and uh, sub, like make my questions submit to it, you know what I mean? Uh, instead of that, what will probably happen is she will have been wounded and hurt and shamed by various things in the world to such a degree that when I say, what's that? Her, it's possible that one of her first reactions to my question will be, you're right, it's probably dumb. This thing doesn't even exist. I probably should take my life more seriously and be a vet or something else. You see, the experiences that we have with getting wounded and disappointed in this world have made a lot of us adjust our expectations. And so we do things like don't ask for a horse for Christmas so that you won't be disappointed. Don't expect Monday to go great and then whatever happens, you'll be fine with. Don't desire to be a ro- have a robust friend group and romantic situation or whatever. Just... Instead of wanting a, a really robust marriage that's life-giving to the neighbors and to the city and you both become more Christ-like and you raise up the next generation of children in your own home, instead of that, just instead hope that somebody finds you attractive tonight for a couple of hours. And it's not like we actually think one is, or this, 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 this one night thing is better than the other. I mean, I know there's cases of that. But generally speaking, I don't think we're doing that. I think this one's realistic. This one I can manage. This one I can control. This one also, if it doesn't work out, I can remember that I was just asking for something small. And so I'm not that wounded by it. But this reveals what I think is the deeper reason or the second reason, really the big thing, the reason why we don't hope. If one, one of the things we do is practice small hopes, things called expectations, by the way, small things that we can manage, the reason why we do that is because we don't want to be hurt. Don't you know that when somebody asks you to hope for a thing, it makes you vulnerable? When you want a thing you don't have yet, It opens you up to the cynics of the world. It opens you up to statisticians and and people who, who have rival stories who tell you that you're a fool. Gosh, when you want a thing, it opens you up to suffering. It's one of the reasons why Buddhists practice eliminating suffering by learning to curb desire. If I can just stop wanting, then I'll stop suffering. How different that is from the invitation of Jesus. God wants us to lift up our desires and invites us 
into suffering and to find him in the middle of it. It is so antithetical to something like Buddhism. We are a people who don't stuff our desires. We don't uh, tame them. We don't get them in order. We submit them to God and lift them up to the highest place that we can at the right hand of the Father and ask the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to do something with our desires. And we find that in the middle of that, we, we, we suffer. I know. And if we don't want to suffer, it's really hard to be convinced to hope. But I want to flip the page and I want to look at Ephesians chapter 3 to see how Paul finishes this prayer because it reveals to us the cost, the reward and the cost of hoping or not hoping. So the reward of hoping and the cost of despair of not hoping. Okay? So turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul's done interrupting himself for a minute and he picks up this prayer. He says, When I think of all this, I fall to my knees to pr and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth, and I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, think the, the spiritual insight and, and wisdom and the knowledge of God, uh, of, his, of, of our hope and of the inheritance and of his power. This is Paul summarizing all that and saying these are his glorious, unlimited resources. You will never run them out. He has unlimited resources. That he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then, listen to the promise, if you hold fast to this hope, what will happen? This is if, then. He prays that we would know this, and if we know this, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Or some of your translations will say Christ will dwell in your hearts by faith. And your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. What happens when you hope, Christian? What happens when you grasp the confident hope that you have in Jesus? Well, first, Christ stops feeling like an alien to you. He stops feeling like a stranger at your door, asking to be let in. He's not a guest anymore. He's home. In your heart, which to the Hebrew people wasn't the seat of feelings. The seat of feelings to them would have been like the stomach where your hungers reside. For them, heart meant who you really are. Who you really are. What would it be like if who you really are is home? to Jesus. Here's the truth. You already are. You just don't know it yet. This is what Paul's praying for, that you would grow in the knowledge of this so that, you, that, that this would feel like home to you. Christ's presence in you would feel like home. And your roots would grow down into God's love and keep you strong. What happens if we grow in our knowledge of this? Our roots get sent down in, by the stream of God's love so that we will be more like a, a mighty oak tree than a shrub in a desert, which cannot survive any storm. And how many of us in our cultural moment are tossed to and fro by the waves, are battered by every fad and fashion and fit of our culture? 
What would it be like instead of being so exhausted by so much change and, and, uh, and, and flippant behavior and capriciousness? There's big words, I know. You're in college. What would it look like instead to be solid and strong and stand tall like a mighty oak? What would it look like to know that the things that are being formed in you will last for generations? Not just until the next album drops or until you finish college. What would it look like for you to know that, that under your branches is an area for people to take shelter and you have fruit that bears in all seasons and that you'll outlast the moment? What kind of confidence can you have? This apparently is what's at stake with our hope. And two more things that you would know, Paul uses four massive words, right? Again, like that you would know the height and, and, and the depth and how long and how far, how far reaching God's love is for you and me. Because friend, God doesn't want you to be unaware of this. If you don't know how much God loves you, he wants to change that. Many of us walk around feeling like God either doesn't love us much or he just loves us a little or he loves us but doesn't like us. Paul says every Christian ought to know this. The, the, uh, the immeasurable amount of God's love for you. This ought to be the bedrock of our confidence. That I have a, a high priest in the heavens who is the Lord of lords and the King of kings under whose feet all, everything is being marshaled and he is for me. And if God is for me, who could be against me? He wants us to know this that we can't even condemn ourselves because he stands even in the way of that. Christian, he wants you to know that. And finally, Paul says, he wants you to have a, an experience of God's love to such a degree that you have a fullness of life. So here's what Paul thinks will happen. Let me just summarize this for you. If we, if we have in the knowledge of God that this knowledge of our hope and, and, and the content of our hope and the inheritance, and we know the power of God that's at work within us, then God would feel at home in our hearts, we would have roots that grow deep, we would know God's love for us, and we would experience a full life. I know that we don't practice hope very much because we don't like suffering. I know that. And that when you hope, it opens you up to being frustrated, disappointed, let down. I get it. I get it. I've, I live in the same world, friends. Jesus did too. Does too. The cost of not hoping doesn't mean we don't suffer. The cost of not hoping is despair. The cost of not hoping is that God feels alien to us. The cost of not hoping is that we are constantly threatened like a desert shrub by every storm and every miserable day. The cost of not hoping is that we are clueless to God's love for us. The cost of not hoping is our life never feels full. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychologist. And he spent three years in a World War II Nazi Germany internment camp. And one of the things he noticed is that despair caused more death than malnutrition and, and a lack of medicine. Despair. He tells this one story of a guy who in 1945, at the beginning of March, said he had a dream. 
and in his dream he was told that on the 30th of March, 1945, the Allies would roll through and free all the prisoners. And for a couple of weeks, that guy had a pep in his step in the midst of the worst possible circumstances in the world. On March 29th, when it became obvious that they weren't going to be freed by the next day, this guy um, had a temperature. <clears throat> on March 30th, he had a fever and became very ill, and on March 31st, he died. It's wild, man. Is it possible that despair costs, costs us more life than hunger and then sickness? Victor Frankl thought it was so. His experience in the internment camp was that way. He said he noticed, and there weren't many of them, <clears throat> but he noticed some people who even when they were sick, even when they were frail, even when they were old, like old and, and on their way out, even in the midst of the internment camp or on the extreme side of death, um, he noticed a few that had a kind of joy, a few that would break bread and share it. They would give people their last morsel of bread. And what Viktor Frankl pulled from that experience is he said, you know, even though there weren't many of them, one person doing that is enough. It's enough evidence for me to know that it's possible. That our circumstances don't need to dictate the way that we walk through them. I'm going to say that again. Our circumstances don't need to dictate the way that we walk through them. All you got to do is think about this guy who had a dream about March 30th. When hope was alive, it seemed like he could do anything. As soon as despair crept in, he literally died two days later. Multiple people around the world are walking in, 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 in similar circumstances and the difference between whether or not they're enjoying their Monday, whether or not they're growing through their heartache, how they're responding in the midst of death and suffering, the way in which they're responding to the, dis to the despairing content of the world around them is because of what they're hoping for. And when we hope for things that cannot deliver on their promise, on the other side of it is despair. And when we don't hope at all, all we feel is despair. There's a cost, in other words, for trying to protect ourselves from suffering and hurt by not hoping for very much. And the cost is fullness of life. The cost is not knowing that you're loved. The cost is being a shrub instead of a tree. The cost is feeling alien to God's love. I want to invite you to hope, Christian. And I know as I do that, that vulnerability rises to the surface and many of us are training ourselves not to hope. What would it look like if Christians begin to exercise muscles of hope? What would it look like if we, this is what I, how I would define hope, if we carried the future in the present? What would it look like if we fixed our eyes on where Christ is seated above and we carried that today with us? And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. What would it look like if my hope was on Him and not in a date, not in a job, not in getting through the pandemic, not in... I don't know, like learning a few more skills, not in accumulating a certain amount of wealth, not in visiting X countries before I die because of wanderlust, not in getting followers or views on things. What if, what if my hope in Christ influenced 
how I engage all of those things. That whether I am in plenty or want, I'm content. What would it look like if my hope in Christ meant that I knew how to abound and I knew how to be poor? What if, it looked, what if, what if my hope in Christ helped me know how to be in power and how to be under the thumb of power? Jesus knows how to be in power and under the thumb of power because he, he had his eyes fixed on things above and he carried them with him in the present. Friend, our world is hurting and buckling. All around you on this college campus and in our city, there's despair, there's low-level anxiety and depression, and what the world needs is little Christ's. What the world needs isn't for Christians to insulate themselves from everybody else's suffering. The world needs us to have hope in the midst of it. And because we have hope in the midst of it, like, like prisoners in freaking Auschwitz, what would it look like for us to share our last loaf of bread instead of hoarding it? Because we don't have hope that God can provide, and so we need to protect our last loaf because we don't believe God is home with us, because our roots aren't deep enough to sustain a storm, because we don't know how much God loves us, and because our life isn't full, and so we get protective, and we angle for comfort, and we, we escape, and we cope. I, I must pray for you. Paul, Paul indicates that, that God has to give us spiritual insight and wisdom in order for us to know, to grow in our knowledge of God. This isn't something we just go into our room and do. But I submit to you that we spend very little energy practicing our hope. I have yet to meet a freshman that when I say, what do you want? They say, new heavens and new earth. I've yet to talk to a 20-year-old person that's passionate about social justice. And when I say, what do you want to see happen in the world? I've yet to hear somebody say, I want to see death gone. I want to see a lion and a lamb chilling together. I want to see no more sorrow and no more suffering and no more pain. I want to see Jesus' face. I want to touch him with my hands. I want to put my arms around his neck and give him a hug. I want to hear his voice. I want him to be my God, and I want us to be his people in a way that is unshakably known. I have never heard that because we don't know how to hope. I would love for this next week for us to begin practice hoping, which means we have to practice being vulnerable. I know that means we have to lift our eyes up and we're gonna be invited into suffering. I know that, friends, but God's strength is made perfect on our weakness. His glory is placed in broken vessels. Though in this life we will have troubles of many kinds, we can take heart because why he has overcome the world. There is mystery in this, and yet, the life of Jesus, the presence of the Spirit, and the testimony of the church for generations have told us this is so. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. Open your, like, open your hands. Loosen your grip. Let hope creep in. And see what happens. See what happens when Christ begins to be home with you. See what happens when you find roots that go a little deep. See what happens when you begin to go, oh my God, you love me. See what happens when you all of a sudden experience, even in the midst of a world that's passing away, an experience of the fullness of life. Tonight, if you're watching this with somebody, I want you to ask two questions. What makes it hard for you to hope? 
And what is causing so much despair in your world right now? What makes it hard for you to hope what's causing despair in your world right now? And then pray for each other. Christian, I invite you to hope. I invite you to hope in an act of defiance in the world, in an act of trust in God. In the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about the content of our hope. You can, of course, read about it in the Bible anytime you want. Or anybody on our staff would love, I'd love to take you for a walk, take you out to lunch or breakfast, pray with you, talk to you about this stuff more. Let's pray together. Father, uh, would you send your spirit to break through all the ways that we buffer ourselves from suffering in the world? Would you, would you the same power that was at work to bring Christ out of the grave, would you breathe life back into our hopes that we put to death? The things that we used to long for as kids that we have said is we don't want anymore or, 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 or are impossible to have. Slay the cynic in us. Put to death the despair in us. Make hope rise from the ashes, Lord, please. May we be a people of hope that doesn't disappoint, of hope that's not placed in lesser things that let everybody down. May we be a people of hope so that everybody that we encounter would know that God is home with us and our roots are deep and that we know that we're loved and that we have a fullness of life that cannot happen unless we hold fast to the hope that you've given us. So help us to hope, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen, amen, and amen. Friends, I love you, and I'm thankful for you. God bless you.